Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge program. The Fatherhood Challenge is a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability of an environment and culture. We're going to encourage and challenge each other to step up and do courageous things that make our families and communities better places. So let's get to it. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always good to have you with me. My guest today is Pastor Cedric McIntosh. He is a chaplain within the Allen Health System, and I'm so grateful to have him with me on the show. Pastor McIntosh, do you have a dad joke for us? Yes. It's a note written a letter written to a, a a father from his son in college. And his, his note read, no money, no fun, sign your son. His father wrote back, that's bad, so sad, sign your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I love that joke. I really love it. <laughs> well, I brought uh, Pastor McIntosh here on the show because he has a very unique perspective on what goes on in the mind when you're experiencing traumatic events in your life, things that that cause grief. And I thought he may be able to give us a bit of a perspective on what goes on in the minds of kids. And so this might be very helpful to the dads in our listening audience. So the first question that comes to mind is what is the number one issue that is messing up so many kids these days, both, both small kids and teenagers? I would, I would say the biggest problem that most kids face is a, a sense of inheritance as it relates to uh, what his parents are giving him, fathers or mothers. Uh, and Solomon in Proverbs uh, chapter 20, chapter 13, verse 22 says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children, children. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Now, the inheritance, I would say, is not a focus on money. It's really on how to live as, as it relates to issues in the family, as it relates to grief, as it relates to any issues that adolescents and young kids go through, the only school that they'll ever get, mainly for being a good parent, is being in the household with a good father and a good mother. The young man learns how to love a woman from watching his dad love his mother. Uh, and the young lady learns how to be loved by a man by watching her dad love his his wife and her mother. So the inheritance is that they are getting is how to be a good father, how to be a good mother, 
how to deal with issues relating to grief. If you tell your kids that little boys or men don't cry, then you are leading them down a road that will be painful in the future. So there are lots of things that we have to understand about our position as it relates to our children. They are able to be in school while they are at home with their parents. And and when we do that, we begin to see and understand more about life and and the issues that that face our day youth. But until we do that, then we we really don't understand the youth of today or in the past for that matter. So does does this explain why kids are why we have so many troubled kids today? Part of it explains that because um, we, I would imagine if we were to look at it from a biblical perspective, we are to be paradigms for our children, for our children. When we talk about, when we talk about Jesus and the Bible in John 14 and 9, Jesus said to his disciples, have I been this with you this long that you have not seen the Father in me? There's a passage in also in Matthew 5 and verse 48, say, be ye perfect like your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Uh, The original language says, be ye mature like your Father which is in heaven is mature. And it's talking about being able to love people who even hate you. And so it is that kind of that kind of teaching that Jesus is saying, if you can see me, you see what the Father is like. So when our children see us, they should be able to see what God is like. And when someone sees our kids, they should be able to see a, a, a kind of a paradigm of who we are. Not, not all kids are going to follow that example, but you need to give them a good inheritance because it starts with what they have learned as to wh- which direction they're going to go in. It, it, uh, Proverbs says several things that relate to children. It says, train up the child in the way that he should go, and when he gets old, he won't depart from it. That is one of the scariest texts in the Bible because a lot of people misinterpret it and begin to think that that text is telling them to train up the child in the church. Yeah, that's have something to do with it, but it's really saying Train up a child in the area that God has given him or her talent in, and when they get old, they won't depart from it. In many cases, we hurt our children by deciding what we want them to be rather than what God has given them a gift to be. So it's a matter of recognizing what their gifts and talents are within your children, which involves spending time with them and actually getting to know your child 
to be able to recognize those gifts and being able to nurture those gifts in a loving way. Is that a good interpretation of, of what that text means? Yes. And it, it really focuses in on spending time with your ch- children and looking at them and seeing what they're gifted at. Um, let me give you an example of what I'm saying. There was a lady who wanted her son, and this is somewhat funny, she wanted her son to be a doctor. He didn't have the gift to be a doctor, but he was so pushed by his mother until he did uh, the training to become a doctor. Now they're both happy. He's a bum doctor. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have the gift to be a doctor, but she said he should be a doctor. Now, if you're really using the talent that God has given your child, then you're focused on the area in which God has bent them to be gifted in so that it lifts up their self-esteem when they're do it when they're doing that particular talent because that comes natural for them. Michael jo- Jackson, Michael Jackson's father found out that his boys and his girls was gifted in music. And one of them named Michael, he could take his ABCs and turn it around and make a song out of it. ABC, as simple as do, re, mi. And he made it into a song. Now, he used music all of his life. He used music all of his life. There was a time when he was about to be maybe possibly put in prison for something that he probably, I don't know if he did it or not, but he probably could have gone to jail. But would he have stopped doing music and in an area where he's gifted? No, he probably would have started a new genre and that genre would probably have been jailhouse rock, but he still would have been doing music. Why? Because it's his gift. It comes natural for him. So I'm seeing another component that might be happening with this. In other words, when a parent pushes their child to do something that maybe the parent wants them to do, but the child does not want to do it or it's not their gift and the parents push anyway, then that is the pattern that that child learns that this is also what you do because this is what my parents did with me. So it looks like it opens up an avenue for them to repeat that same dysfunctional cycle when they have their own kids, because that is the only example that they could have had. Mm-hmm. And and that's true. That's why Herlock and her, de- her book, Developmental Psychology, says at the age of 18 to 25 is the most unreligious and rebellious time of a person's life. So why did she say that? Because if you said to your son, if if Michael Jackson's dad would have said, you're going to be a quarterback for the football team, you're going to play pro. So you carry this football everywhere you go. You throw the football, you carry the football. And when he turned 18 and, and leave the home, you can't make him do it anymore. That's why in college, The worst kids on campus are the kids who have been told by parents in a stern way 
that you can't do this, you can't do that. You know what? For the first time, they're away from home and they do what they want to do. They say, my mom ain't here now. She can't tell me I can't hang out. Uh, She can't tell me I can't drink. She can't tell me I can't go out to a dance. So Herlock says it is that rebellious time. If they're not gifted in that area, they're going to move away from it. And then their world is in a state of chaos. And is that an open door to acting out that grief in other ways, in destructive ways? Uh, Yes. Uh, When we're talking grief, grief in and of itself causes people, young people especially, uh, to respond in negative ways. Um, Kids, first of all, one of the things about youth and adolescence is that young, young toddlers and and preschoolers, and you got your adolescents and each one of those levels, kids invest a lot of time in people, auntie and uh, grandma and grandpa and different uh, family members, mom and dad. And when something tragic happens to Anybody that they have a close relationship with, it traumatizes the child. And and when the child is traumatized, uh, we call it uh, traumatic grief, so to speak. Uh, And that's when something traumatic happens, whether the person is uh, um, dies or we're in a car accident or uh, the family went through a divorce and dad is no longer in the house. The child uh, becomes more irritable, more rebellious, uh, more likely to get in fights and skip school, and focus falls off for for the the youth and for adults. Really, when we are grieving as an adult, we we have short term memory issues as well. So what are these short-term memory issues and why do they come about for people who are grieving, whether it's traumatic grief or regular grief? Well, short-term memory loss or memory impairment is probably caused more so by two things. One, um, we don't sleep as well as we should while we're grieving. And the second reason why uh focus and and short-term memory is impaired is because our minds are bifurcated. That means that we should be thinking about what the teacher is teaching us in class, but our mind is with grandpa who died and we had a close relationship with. So she may be talking about math problems, I hear her, but I don't hear her because my mind is still on grandpa who died or on dad who is no longer in the house because of a of a divorce. So I'm irritated because I cannot change it. So it makes me more more rebellious against the parent in the home or more rebellious, period if it's a death. And so 
in the process of all of these things happening, we look at the child and say, he's skipping school, he's getting in fights, and he's using drugs and all of these things, and I don't know what to do. Well, it's it's a part of understanding your child and understanding yourself. If you understand your own grief, it's you're able to kind of walk kids through the grieving process because you have had losses. And, and then when kids lose a pet, that's a good time to teach them about grief. That's There's the- some, one of the things that I'm thinking of is when we go back to what you were discussing earlier with parents who are pushing, let's say a career or a talent on their kids that mm-hmm. really isn't, isn't theirs. Mm-hmm. That can produce a form of grief in the child because then the child gets down to college and then discovers this is not for me. And they have that awakening. Well, now they have this grief cycle because they feel like they've missed their calling and they've wasted a lot of time on something that wasn't theirs. Mm-hmm. When the parents might've been acting out their own grief cycle. So they may have missed their own calling or had their own opportunity, their own unresolved issues that were manifested on their child, which is unfair to the child, but it seems to be an example or a sign pointing back to a parent who is also grieving something in that area as well. Does that sound correct to you? Yes, that, that is correct. And, when when we experience grief, if we don't deal with our own grief, it's gonna it it will become a factor in what we bring into our relationship with our children, with our, our spouse, and all of those things are you can see it, but many times we don't know it until somebody can address it in the, in the form of what it is. Um, here, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I used to hear people say that little boys shouldn't cry or men don't cry. And mm-hmm. really, if you tell your kids they can't cry, you are making them move away from what is natural when grief comes. And when grief comes, they should understand that the tears of grief is not a bad thing. It should be a sign of a good thing because during that time that they are crying, first of all, they have tear ducts. And why did God give them tear ducts? To express some of these intense feelings that they have. I don't know about you, but I've watched movies that ended so so sadly that it made me cry. I've watched TV shows that ended so wonderfully that it made me cry. I've I've been spanked by my mom years ago, and she said, you better not cry or I'll give you something to cry for. Wait a minute. Didn't you just give me something to cry for? So, so we have to understand how important things are. Those tears are that person or that child's liquid expression of intense feelings. Though each tear is saying something about the investment in history that the child had with the person. Every tear says, I miss her. I love her. I'm going to feel lonely without her. A part of me has been taken away from me. 
-hmm. interesting point too is God didn't just give women tear ducts. He gave men and he gave boys and girls tear ducts too. Amen. That's a part of this, this thing that we have to understand about the inheritance that we're giving our children. If we are going to be good parents, and Solomon says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children, how to discipline your kids? Your kids will know that from your discipline of them. How do you behave? Are you a religious person or are you a a person that is just so vile and mean that your kids want to be away from you? Uh, and again, that might come from your grief, like you said, uh, issues that you've had and haven't dealt with, and you're bringing it into your relationship with um, your children and your spouse. So if we don't get that inheritance of having a good father and a good mother in the household, it brings about a struggle to figure out how to be a good husband how to be a good wife. The inheritance is not there. That's why Solomon put it in such terms that you, you basically teach your children how to be married, how to stay married, and how to have children, and how to, how to work together to keep those children and give them an inheritance that you receive from your parents so that they can give to their children the inheritance that they got from you. From generation to generation. Amen. What are some of the examples that you've seen and experienced just within within your role from kids acting out in grief? And mm -hmm. how did the parents contribute to that grief? Or maybe how did they help resolve it in the end? When it, when it comes down to grief, I've seen, and you probably have seen this too, I, I've, I've seen individuals, adults, adolescents alike, I've seen individuals come in to uh, get some help and the parents say, I don't know what to do with this child. I don't know what to do with them. They're skipping school, they're using drugs, they're getting in fights, and and they're they're rebellious. I can't keep them in the house. They they sneak out, uh, and I don't know what to do with them. Many times, I ask the simple question: Did they lose someone recently that they had a real close relationship with? And uh, the parent will likely think for a few minutes and say, "You know what? He was very close to his grandpa." And when his grandpa died, his grades fell off. He started skipping school and getting in fights and all of these things. And, and I will say to that person, that's, that's, that's a sign of grief. And when we are grieving, when we are grieving, we go through uh, many areas. But one of those areas is protests. And in protests... It makes us irritable because our subconscious is saying, I need to survive this minute. And the only way I can do that is to pretend that it's not true. So you hear individuals say, no, 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 it can't be true. I talked with her two hours ago. No, no, she can't be dead. Don't tell me she's dead. I'm not going to believe it. 
And cognitively, I can see and the child can see or the adolescent can see the body of the dead relative. And yet, cardia or hardwise, they're not ready to accept it. So they are in a, in a, a cycle of re- protest. I, I can't believe it. it, 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 it I'm going to wake up. It's just a dream. So in that moment, that child needs to, or the adolescent or the adult for that matter, needs to allow themselves the space to not believe. What does that, what does that look like? I mean, and is that really where the brain is trying to protect itself from, from trauma? Yes. Like I said, con- consciously you can see and you know that the person is dead, but your heart is not ready to accept it because it's too painful. And your and your your mind is saying, I can't accept all of this bad news at once because I don't know if I can survive. So I have to pretend that it's not so. And some people get stuck in that cycle of pretending that it's not so. And they'll go around and they'll do everything to avoid thinking about or even dealing with the loss. And then one day, maybe months, they they said, I'm going to be strong. I'm not going to grieve. I'm not going to cry and all of those things. And one day, all of a sudden, a great sadness come over them. You may be riding along uh, three months after the fact. And all of a sudden, a great sadness come over you and you just cry and you you don't have anything that may have precipitated this, this, this bout of sadness. Yet, you feel super sad and you don't understand why. That's grief saying, hello, you remember me? Hmm. I'm here. Deal with me. Make friends with me. And we can do that through mourning. Mourning is how we express grief. And the examples of this grief aren't just, I'm guessing, not only just in death, but this can be separation. This can be a divorce. This can be all kinds of causes, too. Amen. You're talking about losing a job, moving to a new neighborhood, uh, uh, changing schools, um, losing a close relative. Uh, maybe a brother is, he's 10 years older and he goes into the military or goes off to college. And that, that, that young child that's left behind is grieving uh, the, the idea of that, that brother or sibling is no longer in the household. So there's so many things. Uh, moving, like I said, moving into a new neighborhood. All of the precious memories you had in the old house, now you don't, you're, you're in a new house and you got to make new memories. If the house get burned down, if a tornado knocks it down, if somebody burglarizes your home, all of these things are forms of traumatic grief. And in, even in traumatic grief, we, we come to a place of trying to deny, trying to deny so we can survive. 
you come home and your house has been burglarized, first thing out of your mouth is probably, this can't be happening to me. This can't be real. No, 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 it can't be real. That's a part of how we grieve as it relates to life and the things of life. I hope you've been enjoying my conversation with Chaplain Cedric McIntosh. For time reasons, part two of this conversation will continue in the next episode. Thank you for listening.